0: This podcast was recorded in a Zoom meeting with the Hartford Street Zen Center Sangha. Please visit hszc.org for information about how to join our online programs or to make a contribution. We depend on the generosity of our members and supporters, especially during this challenging time. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to be here with you, with us as as a group. Um, and I've uh, been thinking a lot recently about discernment and uh, and uh, sort of my place in in <clears throat> in the world and in our practice. And you know, these are we're living in some times in our country of of great discord. Um, Asian American hate has entered uh, our consciousness and mainstream media um, as a long unspoken but deeply ingrained American reality. We spent the last eighteen months or so. Um, uh, really paying attention to the Black Lives Matter movement, which has called us all to think about microaggressions and implicit bias and race-based hate. Um, and, uh, and the disproportionate impact of COVID on Latinx communities and the disproportionate um, response from the healthcare and, and uh, medical communities um, really give us um, some things to think about, it seems to me, and, and to wonder. And then the treatment of the elderly during the first part of the pandemic and the treatment of children at our Southern borders really has had me in a, in a funk recently. Um, and just kind of thinking about how do we become these people um, that live in a world with with all that going on? Um, and how do we respond? You know, what do we what do? we do? Um, and I've discovered, you know, that I, I came to Buddhism, you know, 28, 29 years ago now, um, partially because I wanted um, to have a response to the chaos um, in life. Um, at that time in my life, it was uh, mostly chaos generated by me <laughs> and shared gleefully with all those around me. Um, but I knew it was time for a change. And I was thinking that in Buddhism, I might find um, uh, what Sharon Salzberg, as, as you know, I love to quote described as the possibility of a life feel, uh, filled, lived with peace and ease and equanimity. Um, But what I've discovered over the years is that there's no one size fits all Buddhist practice um, that I can impose on any situation that comes up. Um, Over and over again, I think I'm called just to return to my authentic life, um, to my authentic self, and to get in touch with compassion and kindness um, for myself and for those around me, and then to move into the world um, with some respect um, and some kindness. for me, my life's journey has always said that I must be concerned and that we must be engaged and, um, and active, um, that we can't sit silently by. And yet I find myself 28 years later as a Buddhist in a practice that we do a lot of sitting, a lot of sitting by. Um, uh, and, and so I wonder some days as I'm reading those headlines or, or thinking about what's going on in the world, <clears throat> I wonder um, if we really are having an impact on the world. And on my good days, I realize that we are at the very simple level that if I'm sitting <clears throat> in practice, um, that it impacts me um, and that uh, hopefully I add less chaos to the world and add more peace. Um, and that through that, I'm not exhibiting um, bitterness or, or failure, uh, a sense of defeat about the condition of the world today or our country um, and not sharing that with others. I, in fact, um, um, have a, the capacity um, to, um, to bring some more compassionate joy to, to the world. And so, so that practice alone would be enough. Um, but, you know, even in our Buddhist temples and our sanghas and, and our, our lineages, um, we, we have the opportunity to see up where, where instead of being good examples of how to be unified and how to be one with each other and so forth, that we see arguments and, and interpersonal squabbles and discussions of which way is, is the right way. Um, and you know I'm reminded, um, and I think somebody mentioned it here last week or the week before, um, that the Chinese teacher Yun Man was asked, what is the highest, most profound teaching of all the Buddhas and patriarchs? And he replied, an appropriate response or an appropriate statement. So um, I was thinking about that and it's like, hmm, appropriate, well, that would be one that, that adds to the peace and adds to um, the, the safety and kindness to others. Uh, and so, so what is the appropriate response? And I was listening to a talk by Stephen Batchelor at Upaya, um, and he uses the example of a toolbox. Um, and he says that, you know, when we were kids, maybe we were given our first tool by our dads or by a good family friend um, and say that tool was a hammer. Um, and we were told that this was the best tool ever. This was the most important tool. And so we believed you know, that person that gave us that gift and we began to use that hammer to bring things together and tear some other things apart. Um, there's, yes, a personal story in there, um, and but we believed it. Uh, and then one day as we were doing some little project, we had to cut a piece of wood uh, and we discovered, mm, nope, the hammer is not the proper job for this. There must be, even though I was told this was uh, my first tool and therefore the best tool, um, they um, that there are other tools that I can use for depending on the situation. So for us as Soto Zen practitioners and Buddhists, uh, we're told that Zazen is the most important practice. Zazen is that first tool um, to just sit, shikantaza, um, nothing but sitting, <clears throat> silent illumination. Um, and, and that allows us to be fully present in the moment. And that is indeed an important tool. Um, it's the it, is the it seems to me sustaining tool that has um, that has allowed me to practice um, to the degree that I have for these last couple decades. But in time, we realize that it's not just Zazen, that all of our lives are practiced, moment to moment, every task, every person we encounter, every object that we come in contact with. Um, So there's no question that for me, the time spent in Zazen is important. um, And to achieve that, that pose, that posture of calmness, Um, every day for some period of time, um, is really important. Um, And it's important for me, and as I said before, important for everyone with whom I um, come in contact during that day. Um, But it feels to me as an activist, longtime activist and an engaged Buddhist, that sometimes I think that I'm required to respond to a person in this moment. Um, Someone calls um, for help or asks for something, and I feel like I have to respond in the moment. Or when I read a headline or experience, uh, uh, I've been to a lot of workshops and, and uh, rallies and support things in the last few weeks. Um, and I really believe that I have to do something and do it right now. Um, and, and those are thoughts that sort of um, fly in the face of the idea uh, for me of Zazen. Uh, and it's not one or the other, but, but I think the balance is really important. You know, if people are suffering and having a hard time, um, you know, there's a couple of elderly people in my building, more elderly than me, if you can believe it. Um, and I was talking to one and she was very isolated and feeling very lonely and and just was as sad as I've ever known her to be. Um, and, you know, in my mind, I was on the way to sit Zazen and I thought, hmm, well, let me go sit Zazen for an hour and then I'll come back and go for a walk with this person. Or when I heard about the violence against um uh, folks in the Asian communities here in San Francisco and across the country, you know, would I think, mm, let me go to a compassion retreat and see what arises for me as a response by the end of the retreat on Sunday evening? Um, or would I get engaged right now? And um, as, I, as I mentioned, i am be turning 70 at the, end of, at the beginning of May, the first week in May. Um, and some things have become kind of clear to me. One is that there's not an either or in terms of do I sit zazen or respond to the to the neighbor lady um, immediately. Um, it's both. It's both. I can do both things in my life, and um, everything doesn't have to happen right this minute. Um, but I can I can lead to action by my zazen. I can live my practice by responding first to somebody who's in danger, um, and then living that practice on the cushion or on the chair when I get done. Um, And I've really learned, um, as I said, that I've been thinking a lot about discernment, um, the need for wisdom. Um, In that Dharma talk that I mentioned before, Stephen Batchelor says that wisdom is an appropriate translation of the word prajna, the Sanskrit word, Um, but it lacks, he thinks, what the early Buddhist teachers had intended, um, which is um, in the Pali, the the word panna, can be translated as the process of intelligent discernment. And our good friends in France um, use the word um, uh, precise, like our word precise, but precise, to describe a process of describing what's the appropriate response to any given task or question. And what all of those definitions and um, expressions have in common is um, uh, that that in the ideal world um, and with experience, we do those things as, a, as more and more a part of our intuitive life. So rather than just jump into something, we take the moment or the time it takes um, to discern um, what it is that we should be doing, or that, we sh- that I should be doing or we should be doing. Um, there's a great value in Zen and um, the ability to respond to things in a non-conceptual and non-hesitant way. Um, but, that's what I'm saying is that that doesn't happen just um, because we want it to, or because someone said it should. It's the results in my case of years and years of practice of staring at a blank wall um, and cultivating um, uh, my ability to say, ah, what is what is the next right thing to do? Um, this quality of discernment is it seems to me what Yun Min was talking about um, when he said the appropriate response. So. One of the things I've learned, uh, um, and I've been reading a wonderful book lately um, that is called, um, uh, Buddhism, One Teacher, Many Traditions and written by the Dalai Lama and Tutankhamun Chandra. Um, and and it, so a really a call by these writers um, and, and the folks that helped them put this together, um, a call for Buddhist unity. And so, you know, as I, as I think about discernment and think about how we as Buddhists and engaged Buddhists particularly can be involved in making the world a better place. Um, it, it, it is helpful, I think, to look within our own traditions and lineages um, uh, to see um, how it is that we can um, uh, create discernment and create unity and, and so forth. So in this book, um, they acknowledge that there are many lineage and, and traditions, and in those lineages and traditions, there are specific cultural, country, regional, community, and sangha practices and forms. Um, And then um, in the Dalai Lama's wonderful um, way of sharing, he says that, you know, many times recently in the last last decade, we've all, including many of us in this this morning's practice, um, have gone to conferences or meetings where we talked about unity and we talked about, you know, lineages coming together, um, and we've talked about um, shared practice opportunities. Um, and in the book, the Dalai Lama reminds us that we go. The conference happens, and we have wonderful ideas. And then, as he says, all too often we go our separate ways, and nothing happens until the next conference. Um, and I think that's that's you know sort of a truism in life that you know oftentimes we do a lot of studying and a lot of um, participating, and we can use discernment even there to see how much of that um, is just talk. Some of you have heard me say before that. One of my least favorite expressions in the world of social justice is when somebody says, we need to begin a conversation um, about racial equality or ending discrimination against the elderly or taking better care of our children. And it's just a phrase that gets used a lot. We need to begin a conversation. And I always worry, it's like, what, you know, where have you been? Um, it's, we've had conversations and we should still have them but we need action and, and we've actually had some um, while you were waiting to get to this page. Um, There's been a lot of stuff going on, and and I worry about, um, and I'm sure I've said it myself from time to time, but we should begin a conversation in 2021. Seems a little odd. Um, But what the authors in this book, uh, Buddhism, One Teacher, Many many Traditions, um, share with us is that we are, at the end of the day, a huge and diverse Buddhist family, but we all follow um, the same wise and compassionate teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. And that our um, diversity has allowed Buddhism, um, rather than get in its way, is it allowed Buddhism to be all across the globe, um, literally experienced by billions of people, um, often with respect for their, for their culture um, and for their, their traditional um, family ways of being and community ways of being. And that that's a beautiful thing. Um, and that the results of a conference or a coming together wouldn't be to have one Buddhism with one set of rules and one set of forms and practices. Um, but that, in fact, that diversity is good for us and, and gives us opportunities. Now, all that individual um, interpretation of forms and practices and ancient teachings um, can sometimes land in unskillful and harmful um, actions and practices. Um, and a quick look at the news from Myanmar will give us an example of that. But I think for the most part, the opportunity to live lives filled with peace and ease and compassion um, are are given to us because um, we have our practices and we're committed to them. Um, And and we have the capacity and willingness to be open, completely open to the practices and the ways of practice of others. Certainly there are forms and rituals and traditions and teachings for a reason, and they're very helpful to us. but we shouldn't be rigidly adhering to them. And we should create, um, as I think we do at Hartford Street, a lot of space for people to practice the way that they can um, and the way that speaks to them. Um, And that um, they should make decisions based on um, their work with their teacher and their understanding, all of our understandings of what can possibly work in our lives. And that if I think about that, what can possibly work in my life, my life becomes a teaching and my life is my message. and, and so, so that becomes really important that I respect that for me and then I respect it for everyone else without even um, in a good day, not every day, but on a good day, without even wondering why somebody does it that way or why somebody um, you know did a particular um, uh, ritual in a certain way that maybe it wasn't the way I saw it the last time or even the way I remember them doing it the last time, just to be open to whatever's going on. so. That practice, as I say, begins with me, or begins with each of us individually. Um, Are we tolerant of the practices, rituals, and interpretations um, that are not mine, that I didn't create? Um, Do I cling to Soto Zen practices as the correct practices when I'm talking with others from other lineages or um, reading texts and and sutras and koans from other lineages? Or do I um, wish that I had found Tibetan practice first because of the creativity and colorfulness of their icons and and fashions? Um, Or do I occasionally go to a meeting at Spirit Rock or a workshop at Spirit Rock and think, wow, um, there is a really casual, laid-back, je ne sais quoi here. Um, Folks rolling around on the floor and drinking tea during meditation and and that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe that would have been kind of cool if I'd found that first. Um, But... Those thoughts actually um, reflect a very um, shallow interpretation of what's going on in either of those two traditions um, and some thinking on my part that's um, maybe somewhat humorous but probably pretty lazy um, and doesn't um, encourage me um, to go deeper and to really understand those two traditions um, in a way that this book that I've been reading um, really helps me to do and, and takes me on a journey to understand how we all came through the various lineages from. The days of the Buddha uh, and before um, to 2021. So the book reminds me um, that whatever the lineage of the source, um, whether the language was Sanskrit or Pali, um, all teachers emphasize emptiness. Um, and all practices encourage us to have empty mind, um, to be open to all possibilities. Um, our own teacher says um, um, in Beginner's Mind, there are many possibilities, and the expert minds ones. And so in our practice, um, we, we remember and we are taught um, that the path is easy for those with no preferences. And I love, and and we've read it here before, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you have not read the Xin Xin Ming um, in, in a while, I really encourage you to take it out with you when you go to the beach or for your walk along along the park um, and just give it a read. Um, and and. It's sometimes translated as faith in mind or a verse on the perfect mind, um, if there is such a thing. I'm not gonna read it all, but but I do want to, in terms of this discernment, um, um, share a couple of the verses because I think they're important. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preference. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against and what you, what you dislike is a disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. And then further down, those who do not live in a single way fail in both activity and passivity, assertion and denial. To deny the reality of things is to miss their reality. To assert the emptiness of things is to miss that reality the more you talk and think about it the further astray you wander from the truth stop talking stop thinking and there is nothing you will not be able to know and then towards the end of the poem uh to of the verse it says um in this world (coughs) of suchness there is neither self nor other than self to come directly into harmony with this reality just say when doubt arises, not to. In this not two, nothing is separate and nothing is excluded. One thing, all things move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to live without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality because the non-dual is one with a trusting mind. To live in the great way is neither easy nor difficult but those with limited views are fearful and, and irresolute. The faster they hurry, the slower they go. So, as I say, that's that's just a piece of it. And I really encourage you to download it and read it. Um, and maybe you have recently, and maybe you've got it memorized way better than I do. But it's just such a beautiful um, a beautiful teaching, and really um, offers, in my interpretation of it, so much hope that there is the possibility that you know, not, not ignoring the realities of life, um, but not getting all caught up in trying to be the smartest kid on the block or um, have the most immediate answer or, you know, get my merit badge filled with, um, with little stickers because I've done service here and done something there. Um, I will say in the beginning of my Buddhist practice and probably for the first more than half of it, um, this was a tough teaching for me. You know, my birth sign is Taurus. And some of the things they say about Taurus folks are um, that they are stable um, and um, that they um, are intelligent. Um, and then they say things like um, <laughs> that they can be stubborn. Um, they can, um, they can uh, be dedicated, um, but they can also be um, consistently ambitious and have mental tenacity. And basically what that means is, you know, for me growing up, I was never the, the most handsome gay boy in the crowd. Um, or the, you know, the most athletic kid in school when I was there. So I always thought my thing was to be the smartest one um, or to be the, the, the court jester, to be the most humorous one. Um, and one of the ways I did that was by accumulating what I thought at the time was knowledge. So you could ask me about public health or you could ask me about um, you know, whatever the great political debates of the, of the world were and I would share with you knowledge and facts. Well, the good news about reading the, the, that verse Um, and studying as I have for the last couple of decades is that I now know that those were opinions um, and that those opinions often did more to separate me from others um, than to actually bring me in contact with others. And so what has helped me the most in coming to, uh, one of the things that's helped me the most in coming to my current practice of of calm abiding um, is the teachings of Dogen and specifically um, the fascicle on instructions to the Tenzo. Um, and that, that uh, is a, a wonderful teaching. Um, and you can find it in the book, Moon and the Dew Drop, among other places. But, and there's a lot of important stuff in there. Um, but what resonates for me most is a couple of specific things. One is how important um, uh, it was uh, the work of the Tenzo is. The Tenzo is the person that does the cooking at a monastery or the person that leads the kitchen uh, at a session or a practice period or a retreat that we might go on. Um, And Dogen, Dogen, who was uh, by that point, uh, that he's uh, writing this an esteemed teacher and an elder and and so forth. Um, And he goes from Tenzo to Tenzo in this teaching um, and sort of asks them, why are you walking so long a distance to pick up some mushrooms? Why why shouldn't you be in the Zendo sitting? Or why are you chopping carrots so precisely? You've been practicing as a monk for many decades and shouldn't you be doing something much more important? Um, And the wonderful news is that each Tenzo um, continues what they were doing in terms of that specific practice and says, "Mm, person from a a strange land, you don't really understand practice. Everything we do is practice. Um, Everything that that every act is to be undertaken um, wholeheartedly and importantly. And every act is interconnected. So what we know nowadays Um, those who have been to monastery or who've been to um, sashines or in work periods um, at the the Zen centers at Hartford Street or other place, is that if the food is not ready, um, if the food is not carefully prepared, then everyone else, um, the monks and the abbot, don't have the energy um, to sit their practice and to do their work practices. And so it's all interconnected. So peeling a carrot is a practice that's very important no less or more so than the folks meditating at this particular moment. Um, And Dogen offers three guidelines um, in this fascicle. And he says, one, when you think about what you're doing, number one, is it a benefit to others? Because if it is, it simultaneously benefits you. Number two, does it contribute to the growth, um, to the growth uh, of the monastery or the Sangha? And number three, Um, Are you emulating the masters of old? Are you paying attention to our traditions? Are you paying attention to your teachers? Are you paying attention to those who have been in the practice um, so that you can learn from what they have learned to do what they did or not do what didn't work? He offers the verse that says two-thirds of your life has passed, not polishing even a spot of your source of sacredness. You devour your life. Your days are busy with this and with that. If you do not turn around and shout what can I do? And so that for me is the practice. Um, That for me is the practice. Every task is important. Um, Vacuuming, tending the garden at Hartford Street, um, teaching, chopping the carrots, managing the zendo, answering the door. Um, For me, um, that becomes really important um, because as we sit, um, we ask for and discern what the needs are of others. And what we learn to do, hopefully, um, is to ask. You know, to not come in with my ideas, um, which I have done over and over throughout my life, as has most most of us, um, with what should be done, um, but to actually sit and, and ask what it is that the community or what it is that the individual needs. Um, I can remember in the example that I used earlier, at one point asking um, the nice lady in the apartment below me, um, if she would like to, me to take her for a walk. Um, take her for a walk. Hopefully I didn't word it quite that way, but that clearly was the idea. Um, And she demurred and said, no, thank you. Um, And then later I found out that she had just had hip surgery um, um, and that it was all she could do to walk to the door when I kept ringing her doorbell to ask her how she was doing, um, much less have me dragging her around the neighborhood um, to appease my sense that she needed um, to be connected. So it's a very humble initiative that stopping and um, using our meditation practice to say, hmm, everything is important. Um, in one translation that I read of the of the word eno, which is the manager of the meditation hall, um, in the ancient Sanskrit, it was called um, karmadana, the bringer of joy to the assembly. And I thought about that a lot. Like uh, I've never been the eno, but but when I, I really respect the folks that do that work, um, and and you know it's it's so important because um, having things in place, having things organized and ready for our services and practices, um, um, you know, we may not think about mopping the floor, or putting the chairs out um, as being as important, um, but in fact, each of those is a sacred activity related to our practice, and each of those deserves the same respect as the work done by an abbot or a teacher in giving a taste show or a talk. Um, different things, certainly, um, but each sacred and each deserving of respect. So each is a gift to the assembly and each starts, I think, with the opportunity to say, what can I do? Um, Can I give a talk, yes or no? Um, Can I be the cancer, yes or no? Can I help in the garden, yes or no? Um, And does somebody want me to do that, yes or no? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, At a recent meeting, we were all having Uh, I quickly, um, I I tend to rush to a fix, which is an old habit that I'm really working on. Um, But someone suggested that help in the garden would be lovely. And so I took out a calendar and tried to pick a day. (laughs) Completely wrong response. The response was on the right day, um, see if somebody needs help in the garden that day when the sun is out and there's work to be done. So I think this is um, the true meaning of bodhicitta, that truly open heart, that open mind that we have that says, I want to be. Um, help of help to others. I want to be of service. Um, and if we can get rid of our habit behaviors and really rest in, in calmness, um, we have a chance to do that. In a beautiful talk I heard last week by a guy named uh, Mui Lewis, um, he calls this emotionally inclusive Zen. And I don't know if he made that up or some of you may know that it comes from somewhere else, but I thought, what a beautiful expression, emotionally inclusive Zen. And he talks about that we accumulate karma. Um, it's, the, it's the residual of our past actions and behaviors. Um, and so in dealing with karma, we have a chance to clear it through our practice. That's the whole point, one of the whole points. Um, we can offer forgiveness and amends first to ourselves um, and then to others. And amends is different than forgiveness or apology. Amends means living amends to change the, uh, the, way, we, uh, the way we work, the way we interact, etc. So if I'm bored or angry or frustrated, um, I can understand that that's residual karma left over from past experiences of mine or or those who came before me. Um, And each clearing that I have, each time I practice forgiveness, each time I practice um, sacred stillness, I have an opportunity to clear some room in my head and my heart for some fresh ideas um, and and um, and some new opportunities to interact and connect with people. There's a beautiful word in Japanese called minmitsu, and the word is often translated as mindfulness. Um, But in the context of Buddhism, it actually can be a little deeper than that. And it really talks about um, paying scrupulous attention, being careful, um, and being considerate, intimate, and warm-hearted, and paying continuous attention to details, like the details of the garden, the details of getting a Saturday morning program set up. Um, somebody got up very early and put the electrical equipment together and, and um, somebody wrote a talk and other people showed up and, and, uh, and these are all characteristics of Zen practice. And this attention to detail um, is described as a continuous intimacy with Buddhist practice. Our own Suzuki Roshi says um, that Menmitsu um, is to be very considerate, very careful in doing things. And he describes it as the defining characteristic of the Soto sect. Um, and, a, and a teaching of our lineage. So, one of the things that he said in one of his talks was that my, mimitsu mindfulness, excuse me, as um, it's usually taught, is inward, coming inside, seeing who I am, seeing what's going on, seeing from where I operate. And mimitsu um, points outwards to relationships with people, um, and maybe, and and relationships with everything that we come in contact with. Um, it's really important um, that we, as we practice, that we, you know, we pay attention to the altar, to the flowers, to the cushions. Um, there's a lot in Zen practice, and Mio has been a good teacher about those those zafus belong in a certain way, um, the arrangements on the altar belong in a certain way, and there's a reason for that. And if we all do the same thing, that is not exclusive; that becomes more inclusive. We all have a chance um, to practice the same way. So. You know, I think, I think that um, in recovery, we have a concept called a geographic. <clears throat> and that's where somebody takes off and moves somewhere else or goes somewhere else um, when things get tough. And the hope is that we'll leave the problem behind when we go. Um, and as some of you know, I moved back and forth from Boston to California six times um, in my early recovery. So, so I think I was a good practitioner of the geographic. Um, but John Kabat Zinn has taught us that wherever you go, there you are. And in my uh, in a in a uh, Doku-san with um, Mel Weitzman on two occasions, he told me, "Just do this, Stephen." And I said, "What?" He said, "Stop moving, stand still, and go deep." And so I remember, I remember the story that a young man, um, after a month-long retreat, um, asked Suzuki Roshi how he could retain his peaceful state of mind once he left. Suzuki Roshi said, "Don't worry, it'll go away." And so I think the point of that is that we really learn through this practice. Um, to sit with what we we have and who we are. Um, And sitting with what we have and who we are gives us this opportunity to give careful respect to every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our practice. Everything is ultimately important and everything is Buddha nature, right? So the little things that we do to prepare the zendho or to strengthen our sanghas, the ways in which we come from the sangha out into the world, we, we, we are told to be very careful um, with details. Um, and why, do we, why are we careful with details in, in Soto Zen practice? Because there is nothing else but the details. Um, we have the opportunity to take this present moment very, very seriously. Um, and in Soto Zen, we have that opportunity then to open up our, our minds and our hearts. Um, and so I think <clears throat> there's an old adage that says, you get the love you think you deserve. So today, um, I'm on a journey, and I invite you to come on a journey of your own, um, not a geographic to outrun the present challenges that we face in the globe and in our country, um, but rather a journey inside um, to bring loving attention to my own life, for you to bring loving attention to your life, and to remember the capacity that in this sacred stillness, um, we have the strength to breathe, we have the strength to ask the question, what can I do? And then we actually have the strength to just to just do that, that this is not a race. We don't need to hurry and rush. Um, and you know, the words of the Buddha said, um, a wise person cares for themselves, a wiser person cares for others, but the wisest person of all cares for self and others together, always. And in the Bendawa Dogen says to us that Buddhist ancestors out of their kindness have opened up a wide gate of compassion in order for all sentient beings to enter realization. And so I think that for me, um, when I get in a funk and wonder what's going on in the world and how do we become these people? And I think "Hmm, in Buddhism, we should have something to offer the rest of the world in terms of our compassion um, and care for each other. And then sometimes you think, "Hmm, maybe not so much Um, between lineages, between traditions, um, between competing um, uh, retreat centers or, or Zendo Zen centers um, um, struggling to keep membership up, um, sometimes even within our own song and uh, Zen centers, um, the reality that we're human beings and that sometimes there'll be communication issues and sometimes um, unity and sometimes bumping um, and that all of that is human. Um, and so we get this opportunity um, because the ancestors have made for us a way um, to embrace the importance of the small things and the details um, and that everything we do um, is important in bringing our lives um, to full practice um, and to full practice realization that everything we do is practice um, and and our practice um, will set us free um, and will enable us in that freedom to be interconnected um, with all suffering sentient beings. Um, And so for me, I think um, it's really a beautiful time to be alive, there's lots to do. Um, and lots of people to do it. And so it's important for me to you know, take that deep breath and be willing to completely ask the question, what can I do? Um, and to share the answer to that question with all of you so that all of you have an opportunity to be equally engaged um, in actions um, that are important to your life um, and that, that you are um, have the capacity and energy and wisdom and love to do. So um, I invite us all to, uh, to not be daunted by the challenges in the world right now, but to be strengthened by the practice um, and to know that each one of us creates that practice every single time um, we show up on Saturday morning um, and every single day in every single thing we do. So thank you. And take a question or two before tea and cookie time.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, Stephen, just just a note about the, the Xin Xin Ming, the poem on believing in mind. Uh, it's, um, I think people often get into a kind of a, a misinterpretation uh, where they start to think that they are working towards some sort of life where the human experience of liking this and not liking that vanishes. And I don't think that's realistic. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I don't. I, I think um, it says the path is easier for those with no preferences. And so I think if we could manage to have no preferences, wouldn't life be just, you know, just delightful and wonderful. Um, but I think that's a, it's a guidance. And I think the fact of the matter is we do have preferences. Um, that's how we stop from walking in front of traffic. Um, That's that's how we stop from um, uh, burning our hands on the stove. Um, That's, and and importantly, that's how we stop from hurting someone's feelings by things we say, um, because we think about, and we have discernment about our next word or our next action or our next thought. And so we don't wanna be completely, um, you know, it's not possible for human beings living in crowded urban environments or any other probably um, to be without some preferences. Um, but I think that the way I um, work with that, with that poem um, is that um, I'm not without preferences, but my preferences aren't so important as I thought they once were. And if I ask instead, what else is possible? Um, then, I, then it's a, a much easier path for me. So that, uh, you know, do I need to be rigidly attached to my preference for vanilla versus chocolate ice cream? If someone has just served chocolate ice cream, um, not, no. Because that might hurt somebody's feelings who went to some trouble to buy that ice cream, um, and so I think it's I think it's that piece for me that that I certainly, as a human being with a prefrontal cortex, I certainly have preferences or, or you know discernments, um, but it's not to be rigidly attached to them. And for me, it's always to take a look at them, hopefully before speaking or acting, um, but if not, um, shortly thereafter to to evaluate what was my intention and what was the impact. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, sh- uh, Cheryl. Um, as you were talking and sort of talking about how, you know, we can sort of let go of the forms, I was thinking, say, say, of P- P- Picasso or Dali, who are very avant-garde artists. You look at their early work, and it's rigorous academy training just like we have rigorous training in the zendo and it's often said and I'm not sure which artist said it but that you have to learn the rules before you can break them or a John Cage you know or a Merce Cunningham like all of these people with rigorous training and only from the rigorous training do they um kind of let go of the form, so to speak. And what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think there's a ballet called the Trecadero Monte Carlo something or other, and it. it's all men that do classical ballet and it's they make fun of it. Um, but before you can get in the troupe that travels around the country performing, they study classical ballet for years so that they know exactly how to do all the movements. But when you see them, it looks like almost slapstick. It's beautiful, but it looks like slapstick. Um, and I don't know if you or others here had the opportunity to go see the um, Picasso and Calder um, exhibit at the museum here in San Francisco. Um, but as you look at those, um, the I just blanked on the word, those Calder hangings, those things that hang. And oh. yes, thank you. Um, and you look at them and think, wow, that's just, you know, a little piece of this and this shape and that shape and this shape. Um, and then you realize it's all hanging in a particular way. Um, And so that that involved, while it looks like complete expression, complete freedom and expression, that, you know, there's art involved in that, and there's some physics involved in that, and there's some engineering involved in that, and there's some construction involved in that. Um, And then the results, the impact on us is, wow, what a burst of creativity and energy. Um, And so I think you're exactly right, Cheryl, that, you know, as we learn this practice, it's very important um, for us to... To you know, have good teachers and to um, to be in touch with um, you know the traditions and to honor those who come before us by knowing what they did and why they did it, um, and then um, to hold that I would say lightly um, if it gets in the way of your practice of of uh, Soto Zen or Buddhism, um, and so to do that in, in communication with the teacher. Um, or with um, good good Buddhist friends, you know, Kalyanamita. Um, but that, that, that as we learn, um, I think for me, one of the great learnings has been how much there is that we can do in practice to make the practice available for self and others um, that doesn't require um, years in a graduate school or years in the library or, um, you know, translating ancient texts from um, Sanskrit or Pali or... Um, those, all, all those important things and we're glad the scholars, including any who happen to be here, um, have done that and are doing it. Um, but in the meantime, um, chopping the carrots and, and uh, turning on and off the lights is equally um, a way to practice everyday practice. And so to find the balance um, between honoring the tradition and knowing the forms and rituals um, and then making them alive for people in communities of color and for the elderly, for children um, for people in different um, regions and countries um, um, requires and offers us so many opportunities um, uh, to do things um, uh, you know, uh, differently um, and, and to feel really good about the, the, our part of that sacred practice, um, um, valuing the teachings um, and, and living the practice both. Thanks. Does that help? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mia. Okay. Yeah.
1: I just, uh, you reminded me, uh, Stephen. Uh, uh, I went to a performance of the ballet Trocadero years ago uh, with, a, with a friend who was a ballet dancer. And he said, um, after the, the performance, he said, uh, if they didn't know exactly what they were doing, they would totally wreck themselves.
0: Right, yeah. Well, you think about it. And I occasionally will hear people at our meditation and recovery meetings talk about that they've developed a meditation practice um, it's often fresh out of a rehab center of some kind, um, and that they're now sitting for 60 to 90 minutes a day every single day. Um, and you know, I, I often, I have deep concern and compassion for them that that's, that is a lot of time to be sitting still um, if you don't have some support um, and instruction and in good posture um, and in the necessity for stretching before and after that, um, you know, and especially if your body is coming off years of, of, of you know, abuse by addiction. Um, it's like you really need to be taking care of your body. And meditation certainly is a gift um, for, for folks in that early stage of recovery. Um, but to jump right in um, and to sit for 90 minutes a day without somebody helping you with posture and, and form and so forth um, um, could, in fact, be dangerous physically. So, so I think that's the same thing with the folks in, in that particular ballet. You need to learn how to take care of your body. Otherwise, you'll end up falling off the edge of the stage or you know, leaping into the arms of one of the other guys. And um, as, as they actually show in one of their filmed, um, filmed uh, ex- experiences, um, somebody leaping into the arms of someone and going right straight over the person's head because they hadn't practiced it enough. So to make it look cre- like a burst of creativity, like Calder or the ballet, and that ballet um, requires, um, as Cheryl um, said, you know, just very, very, very careful preparation um, and, and skill development. Any other thoughts? Okay. Well, the sun is shining outdoors and there's an ocean to walk next to and a garden to be in and probably for some of you, um, jobs to go to or something, but whatever it is, um, have a beautiful day. Thank you, everyone.